0: Tammy here. This week's episode is a chat with astronaut Anne McLean, the first person I have ever spoken to who has been to space. We talk about Anne's experiences in space, and we talk about in space. is She was in space, is what I'm saying. Also, we talk about her past um, as a U.S. Army test pilot, a helicopter test pilot. Super interesting person. I hope you enjoy the episode. And I also want to say you are listening to this on June 1st. So from me to you, happy Pride. I know I love Pride season, Um, not just because of parades and the types of gatherings that we probably won't have this year, but because it is an opportunity for um, me to watch everybody in my community trot out some of their most unabashed versions of themselves. I was in the New York City Dyke March last year and had the best time there, and I just hope that whatever you're doing for this month to celebrate, um, that you take a minute and just know that, hey, me, this person who can't be near you right now, um, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for being part of our family. I'm proud of myself. And um, I also want to say a great book you could read this month would be uh, Save Yourself. By Cameron Esposito. Buy it through your local indie bookseller. And please enjoy this episode of Query. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on. Darling, I know, I know, I know it's careless. I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Ann McLean, and I am currently a NASA astronaut. Um, in my background, I was a Helicopter test pilot in the army before that, um, a rugby player, kid from Spokane, Washington. Oh, see, I, I hope that some of your listeners know rugby. Otherwise, this is going to sound weird, but um, I was a hooker most of the time. I was a flanker. Okay. So you're um, crazy.
0: Flankers are generally yes, crazy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right uh yeah it's a it's the flinging your body position uh but you were you're were a hooker. I absolutely know what a hooker is. um do you want to describe it to anybody who might not know rugby what What is that position?
1: Sure, in? so to people that don't know rugby, um if you look at a scrum, which if you don't know rugby, you probably know what that is, but it's like when all the massive amounts of people on one side hit all the massive amounts of people on the other, the hooker is the one like dead in the center of that. And the idea mm-hmm. is that when the ball gets thrown in the middle of the scrum, the hooker hooks the ball back uh, to you their the side, ball hopefully. So in yeah. general, you're just kind of getting bent in half trying to win mm-hmm. the ball.
0: Right in the middle of the action. Right in the middle of it. And the, the scrum that you're talking about, it's like, you know, the equivalent, I guess, in uh, American football would be like when the, you know, the two lines are, are lined up. But then they're yeah. smashing at each other. That is that's what you're talking about, right? And like, if all the linemen
1: decided to hug each other mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. hit the people across from them, right? That's rugby.
0: <laughs> um, and you said you were a NASA, you're a NASA astronaut. Just as a question, this is an aside have you ever considered the portmanteau Nastronaut? Nastronaut, Na- Nap, Nastronaut. Oh, no, I had not. But Wait, will you consider bringing that directly to? NASA? I'll I'll
1: put it up my chain of command, and I'll see. I'll let you know yes. how high it gets. <laughs> Thank
0: you very much. Um, and and a helicopter test pilot. Uh, I I don't even know what that means. What are you testing? Okay, talk me through what you're testing. Okay, so
1: and you know what? I don't even think I knew what being a test pilot meant before I went to test pilot school. You know, and and I think a lot of people when we picture a test pilot, we picture like. You know the the jet pilots in the '60s that were trying to break the sound barrier and go higher, faster, farther uh, than everyone else. And so, you know, so when I went to test pilot school, I was thinking, okay, now we're going to get the fancy you know flight suit, sunglasses. Not really, but um, a, a test pilot is somebody that flies an airplane to test out either a new system or a new aircraft by understanding the design and the engineering behind it as well as the actual piloting skills. And so. The really important part of being a test pilot is being able to have an opinion on the airworthiness, flyability of certain types of aircraft, all different types of aircraft for a certain type of mission. So everybody comes into test pilot school, you like, like for me, I, I flew the Kiowa warrior, which is like a small scout attack reconnaissance helicopter in the army. So that's where all my experience was. So automatically you go fly something else and you think, well, this is not as good as what I'm used to even though y- you may have no basis for that. It just might not be what you're used to. So that whole year at test pilot school is spent, um, you know, getting in really nerdy equations, which I'm all about, um, and then also getting exposed to all these different how to fly all these different helicopters, fixed wing, etc., so that you actually have an opinion on like goodness and badness so that like the product is someday you're going to go work for some company or the military and they're going to say we need a new type of aircraft for this mission, and you can actually have an opinion on that.
0: I wish that our listeners could see me, because I was, <laughs> I, my face was full of joy as you were speaking, uh, and my mouth agape. Uh, sounds like a bunch of the world's coolest, toughest dorks. You know what I mean? Like the, <laughs> the Venn diagram of... That might um, be accurate, in- Yeah. Of an abject nerd, that but they're also the bully, you know, like when like the, <laughs> they got the glasses, but they're gonna punch you in the face. Um, that how did how do you how did you what's your training before? Like like talk to me about how you even get to that place. Like what is the training prior to that yeah. that you need. Yeah.
1: Okay. So so first of all, I want to touch on something that you said. You said Venn diagram. And
0: and you may actually fit in
1: well with the test pods because we also use Venn diagram, the word Venn diagram in everyday conversation. So Cameron, yeah, you might be takes I, a door to know <laughs> door is what I say. <laughs> yeah. So um uh, so test pot school when you go to so my my background again, army helicopters. So I went to flight school um, uh, early on, learned only to fly helicopters, flew the one helicopter I flew for a long time, which actually makes me a really limited pilot before I went to test pilot school. I only knew how to fly helicopters. And the helicopter that I flew was uh, what we call VFR only, which means you have to be able to see. We can't fly in the clouds. We don't fly up real high. We're like our whole mission is on the ground. So before the army sent me to the Navy's test pilot school, I went through actually about a year of training to learn how to fly airplanes instead of helicopters and uh, like big multi-engine uh, aircraft. Um, and then I had to learn the acquisition process, the government acquisition process, which is interesting. That's where all our test pilots are.
0: Wait, I want to go. <laughs> I want to go back even further because I think. So, <clears throat> here's a good question. This is gonna. This is gonna. This is gonna get me in the right going in the right direction. When did you join the army? Yeah, that'll be a that'll be a place that well, will okay, make it easy for me to understand how one would how this trajectory would be possible yeah. for a human being.
1: Well, I I will tell you the first time I tried to join the army was sure.
0: When was <laughs> the first time you tried to join
1: the army? Was this summer after my junior year in high school, but I was only seventeen, and so I had to get my parents' signature. So I shocked them one day. I invited the recruiter over to convince my parents to sign off on the paperwork to let me join the army, which they didn't do.
0: Um, military family or not?
1: Nothing. Family? No military in my family. Um, so I what made you interested? You know, that is a hard question to answer. Um, I I think
0: I don't know the movie Top Gun, like everyone my age. I mean, obviously I wrote <laughs> down Top Gun like as I was, you know, especially if you then you became a Navy test pilot because because they're top. The Top Guns are their Navy pilots, right? Because they fly off of aircraft. Characters. That's right. So Air, I said aircraft characters. Yes. What I meant was aircraft.
1: Carriers. Actually, there, yeah, that might be a new, uh, another new term uh, that we could. Aircraft use. Aircraft
0: characters are yeah. what are in the movie Planes uh, <laughs> by Pixar. Um, but, but those are the top. The characters in Top Gun are Navy pilots. That's right. Um, so, are they test pilots? Is that what they are? What are they? They're actors. I know they're. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. yes. Yeah. So they're, yes, they're yes, characters. Yes. So actually, yes. Top
1: Gun is the fighter weapons school in the Navy. So in general, from my understanding, got I'm not Navy, it. but like that's got it, got like got it, a, like one of their like really difficult schools for like their their you know some of their top pilots. That's separate from test pilot school. That's like maybe it's like test pilot school without all the math.
0: So you're so even though you went to Navy test pilot school, you're still army. That's correct. Like that's your background. That is. Um, I, I don't have, I'm not, I'm not versed in military stuff. I'm not, I don't know shit about it. I will say I am, I, I am very, (laughs) um, my girlfriend knows that each time I'm, I get very emotional about the troops. This is a true thing about me. I, I just, especially uh, folks who are queer LGBTQ uh, service members, because I think, you know, I'm I am a bit of a peacenik, but I also understand that I live in this country, and I think that it's pretty short-sighted to um, do anything but, feel, like, enormous gratitude and, like, heart-wrenching uh, emotion because it's, because, like, because there, there are, because the system that I live in, it, uh, some people um, volunteer for a bunch of different reasons to, you know, participate in, like, the most uh, dangerous version of the thing that like, you know, in my heart of hearts I obviously wish didn't exist. Or not obviously. In my heart of hearts, I wish didn't exist. But I also live in the the real world. So I feel like it's a it's a conversation between my pragmatism and my um optimism that I am actually completely at peace with, you know. And it really I a lot of times, especially like if I'm performing somewhere like San Diego, There'll be a lot of queer uh, service members who come to the show because like I just a lot of times people that come to my shows are queer folks who have not felt a lot of support elsewhere. And I think sometimes that can translate to somebody who has been in the military Um, and especially people who, um, you know, I don't know, it just. Yeah. I, you, you were going to say something. What were you going to say?
1: Yeah. You know, I think I can kind of sense that there's somewhat of like an internal struggle in in between like, you know, supporting the troops versus wishing they weren't needed. And I think that actually that exact struggle lives in the hearts and minds of the service members. And, and absolutely. And maybe even, you know, I heard this quote uh, once about like that. Actually, nobody hates war more than the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen that have to fight it. Um, you know, and there's so there's kind of the biggest bigger question of the, the need for militaries, international security and things like that. But, you know, you mentioned LGBT service members and it's been a really interesting last 15 years um, of, of really a time of change of the military for LGBT service members. And going from, um, <clears throat> you know, a, a secrecy about your service and your personal life to where, you know, today, uh, you know, they're full, fully welcome. Um, or m- maybe I shouldn't I shouldn't. Say fully, but a heck of a lot more than than they were before. And there's no rules or regulations uh, keeping LGBT uh, folks out. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not struggles. But you know, um, the 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 bend of curve of justice is long, but it, it goes in the right direction. And um, and so I think it's been an interesting time. And I think you know we were in a, a time of combat for the first 10 years of my service. And that was before the the repeal of, um, you know, Don't Ask, Don't Tell and DOMA and things like that. And so Mm -hmm. what I saw as a leader, as a military leader, um, you know, anything in my personal life aside, what I saw as a leader was if I had LGBT troops in my command, I could not take care of them as well as I could take care of their straight counterparts because I was by the rules um, not allowed to support their families and their families didn't have the financial and services that other family members did. And so it was this intense time of combat where we had the sacrifices of the LGBT community were on par with everybody else. They, you know, they were right there um, shoulder by shoulder, but as a leader, we did not, we could not take care of them. And I am so happy that that is not the case now. Um, our LGBT family members, service member, family members um, can be taken care of.
0: That is, that's a really, that's really that's really well addressed. Um yeah, I think that's I think that's what makes me so emotional is thinking about folks not having that protection. And and I and I also, you know, I am sure that it is still not uh, great for many folks because I also live in America where it is not great for many folks, you know. And so um Yeah, I don't know. I had the I had the opportunity to I got invited to um to perform for the troops and I wasn't able to go and I I am like so hoping that I will get to get a chance to actually do that sometime in my life. It was going to be on like one of those giant planes where they fly the planes inside the plane. Whatever the fuck that's called, the plane that's so big that's how they put the plane they get the yeah. planes oh, and yeah. put them in the plane. Yes, yes. Um and it was going to be to like um Iraq and afghanistan and uh i just wasn't able to go uh well if you're still interested i I
1: probably know the right people to call and and you know yes i
0: am still interested right we'll make sure that happens we'll make we'll have this conversation at a different time but yeah absolutely i it's yeah it's very well let's i want to ask you a question about so then you said you know, the 15, what, so when did you actually join? So I,
1: what age uh, were you? Uh, I was, I had just turned 19 when I left for West Point. Um, so I, I applied to West Point for undergrad. Um, for those that don't know, the, the military academies are both a four year institution and an officer program. Um, so but you
0: were, so you're, you're just a, you're, I think you're like two years older than me. And if I, I'm just going back in my memory. <sighs> what are you, are you amongst the first? female cadets so the
1: first uh, female cadets at, uh, from west point graduated in 1980 i graduated in 2002 um but still even, even oh. in my class it was only about 10% uh were women wow. wow what was that experience like um honestly for me it was amazing um it was exactly what i needed at that age um you know i was kind of an awkward teenager like i had big dreams and goals and um but what, like, I don't know, like West Point, it was very structured, um, probably more so than, uh, uh, than I really wanted at the time. But um, I think I joined the military because I wanted to go fly airplanes and accomplish all these cool things. But the reason I stayed in the military and what I really wanted after West Point, that was my foundation and why I still love the military today. It has nothing to do with all that flashy stuff that you kind of see on TV. And was so much more to do with the people. Um, the Army is all about taking care of our people and being a leader and being a part of a team to accomplish, you know, kind of a greater mission. And West Point really laid that foundation that I still use uh,
0: every day. So you graduated as an officer. That's correct. And then, uh, and then learned how to fly. Yeah. So there was a, a bit of a helicopters. gap. Helicopters. <laughs> yeah. I know
1: I I fit a lot in. So one of the things I get I get a little bored every easily. So like every couple of years throughout my career, I go do something kind of totally different. But but yeah, when you graduate West Point, you're commissioned in the army as an officer. So I became a second lieutenant and I branched aviation to fly. But before I started flight school, I went uh, to grad school in England uh, for two and a half years, um, which was great. I did a lot of academics, um, did my master's degree, but. Played rugby. What did you
0: get your master's in?
1: Um, I have two master's degree. I did one in uh, aerospace engineering and one in international security. Where did you Where'd you go? Uh, so two different universities over in England: a University of Bath and University of Bristol. Um, and I also played rugby um, on uh, in the English Premiership, uh,
0: which is really where I got into rugby was playing. Wow! England. And those are smaller towns. They are yes. So that's also an interesting. I don't know, just a slightly different. Version of uh, that particular schooling. I don't know what that's. This is wild. Okay. Yes. Then what happens next? Uh, Got multiple masters. Yeah, did master's degrees in England. In, in England, yeah. Learned rugby. Returned. Yeah.
1: So um, and actually d- during that time I started playing on the U.S. national team for rugby as well. So I was kind of going back and forth. Was, oh,
0: so you're slightly better than me. Uh, no, I, because you <laughs> played on the U.S. national team. It, it totally for, like, different positions. Years in college. Perfect. So I think, so I played in the Northeast neck, You a lot think too. Like, you think, you think neck and neck, you think we're pretty close.
1: I, I think right yeah. now, if we went, it would be like, <laughs> who's going to break an ankle first <laughs> or pull a hamstring. <laughs> Who is going to tear the other one's ears off, which is a real concern in rugby. It is. Yes. I used to tape my ears yeah. down. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I used to play in the Northeast also West Point didn't have a team when I was there. Now they have one of the best teams in the country. Very proud to say go West Point rugby. Um, but so I used to just drive around and like pick up tournaments in the Northeast all the time um, when I lived up there. But uh, wow. yeah.
0: Um, OK. Playing on the national team in rugby. But then where were you living?
1: Uh, so uh, England. And then when I came back to the U.S., I moved to uh, just outside Fort Rucker, Alabama, which is where the Army flight school is. Uh, so that's where I kicked oh. off like my flight
0: training. Got it. Yeah. And then. And then what happened next
1: so i went to flight school and then um right after flight school i got qualified uh, as i said in the kiowa warrior which is the little scout helicopter and my first duty station was in hawaii uh which is you know pretty rough assignment but um but again that was the time that um you know the middle the wars in the middle east were were um we had a lot of troops over there and so um i like to say my, my stuff went to hawaii but um i spent a lot of time in iraq so about six months after I graduated flight school. Actually, some of my first flights in a helicopter outside of flight school were in combat uh, in Iraq. So we spent 15 months uh, in Iraq.
0: And I I mean, I don't know. I don't know if if this is something you'll be open to answering, but I am curious. So under, you know, those sound like pretty extreme situations. Um, And this was still happening before the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I know you were talking about wanting to protect other service members, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I also just wonder if you're comfortable at all speaking to this sort of pressure that that might have put internally to edit the way you spoke about your own life. Because I have been in situations, you know, as a young person for the first couple of years when I was dating a woman, I was at a Catholic university where I could not speak about what was going on in my personal life. And for me, I found that it created a real rift in my connection to myself, you know, where like, I I don't know that anyone should have the experience of essentially like lying being required to lie by omission for you know years at a time it really took like a toll on my ability to open up to people because once you have that skill it's just not a skill it's not a good skill you know um being able to omit and uh choose which facts you think might work for a certain audience mm. is not necessarily a good skill. And it's something I've had to train myself out of. Mm. And I, I wonder if you can relate to that at all, or if that feel, felt at all mm. present for you.
1: I, you know, I can relate to that. And actually, as I'm hearing you speak, like, I just want to hear you talking more. Um, you know, I read your book and uh, and I saw a lot of myself in, in a lot of that journey. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think anytime we're part of organizations where we can't be our true selves, it does take a toll, and it kind of changes who you are and how you view yourself. Um, and I think maybe for me, maybe I'm just thinking about that toll. I think um, and really kind of reflecting on it and and how to change it for people going after me. You know, uh, you, you know, I, I think people always talk about a midlife crisis, right? And you know, and, and so I've been thinking about like what does that mean? Like, and I think it's that point where you get to the point in the world where you're like, wait a minute, like the adults. That were setting all these rules, maybe didn't know everything, but, but like, and you start to get to be that position where you are that adult, and you're like, well, how do I make that different for everybody coming after me, right? And, um, and professionally, you know, I could not be more happy with where I am professionally, but that comes with a huge amount of responsibility, um, mm-hmm. both technically, professionally. I mean, you know, as astronauts, we are stewards of some. Uh, very high dollar and very important, um, uh, you know, government resources. And so there's that that professional responsibility. There's also the responsibility to make sure that, you know, anybody that comes after me doesn't have to, you know, uh, hide who they are. And, um, and, and that's important to me. And, and so when I see 25-, 30-year-old service members uh, or folks at NASA just, you know, being exactly who they are, that makes me so happy because y- you can still do the jobs that we're doing. Um, uh,
0: yeah, I I really, I really appreciate what you said. And, and I think for me, some of the same feelings are coming up. Uh, you know, I think I was, I think I spent a lot of time uh, focused on making things better for other people. I still want that. Um, and I don't think I realized how much damage had been done because of this time in my life, because partially for me, it sort of created, it set like a fire of achievement where I think I thought, like I totally hear what you're saying about growing up and being the adults in the room and being like, wait a minute, but like that makes a lot of sense to me. I also think I thought that I would get to the point where I sort of had had attained so many of my goals that um, that, that would be enough to like, heal this split in myself you know like it was like I mean it was you know okay you don't you don't accept me but we'll like um not only can I survive under those conditions but I can thrive and and let me show you how and I, I just think I got to a certain place in my life where I felt where I had reached enough goals that I realized oh my god it's not gonna come from like a thing there's there's probably nothing I can do that's going to change this feeling I probably have to figure out I probably have to accept myself you know like work on bringing myself back together because it's probably not going to be anything external and I don't think that's something I could have realized unless I felt like I just got to a certain place like even just as an adult, you know, like, okay, now I have a nice apartment or whatever, you know, I used to have a crappy apartment. Now I have a nice apartment. Does that help? You know what it's like? <laughs> you know, it's yeah.
1: Like, well, you know, something uh, that it's interesting, you know, we're, um, we're having this conversation in the middle of the quarantine. And I think, um, mm-hmm. something that this makes you realize is like, is it the apartment that like, that helps or does it distract? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, is yeah. it, uh, is it something that distracts you from really understanding and, and accepting your core? But you know, I think I, I've worn so many hats throughout my career. Be it you know, I you know, playing on the national rugby team, or or being you know a, a combat veteran and, and helicopter pilot, and now a NASA astronaut, and um, and and lots of other little roles throughout my life as a as a coach and um, family business and all these other things, and and you know, at some point you go, wow, I, I became really good at molding myself to excel in each of those. And and maybe kind of what I'm thinking about now is like, maybe I got so good at molding myself. I'm better at that than than being myself.
0: <laughs> spicy, <laughs> spicy <laughs> statements. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. And yeah. then I will tell you and and
1: and the, the, the other part is that I, I think, What I'm realizing, you know, you and I have talked about, you know, you mentioned your upbringing in the Catholic Church, and I have, you know, my military background, what do those rules really do to you as a person? And I think, now, I feel like, you know, there's always exceptions to every rule, but as a whole, right, our society, Um, and I think, you know, working at NASA is like such an inclusive environment. I mean, all are welcome, you know, are you a nerd? Okay, good. Do you think like nice polo shirts or dress up? You are one of us. Like, (laughs) like, come on over. Like nobody cares about your background. Uh, I mean, we care, but it's not important. And so, and so like, I'm all of a sudden in this, this amazing organization that's like, Hey, Anne, show up as you are. And there's a part of me that goes, wait, I still am attaching goodness and badness to parts of who I am, even though everything around me is saying you're good just the way you are. And that's where I start going like, wait a minute, like maybe there has been some things ingrained over my life that, that I'm attaching goodness and badness. Like I'm holding myself to a standard that nobody else is anymore. Like everyone else is just saying, show up as you are.
0: I very much relate to that. I really relate to that. Well, I want to, I want to change the subject because look, I gotta know about space. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How the fuck did you become an astronaut?
1: Yeah, you know, um, I wanted to be an astronaut. I'll tell you the first time I told my parents that I wanted to be an astronaut, I was three years old. Um, I was like going after preschool, my mom said that the other kids were like upset. Why do I have to go to school? You know, they don't want to leave their parents. And that my mom was like, you just turned around, walked right in. And you said, I'm going to school to be an astronaut. And she's like, I don't know where you came from. So I don't remember that story. Obviously, I don't know why I wanted to be an astronaut then, but <laughs> it's always something that was in the back of my mind. But, um, you know, the actual selection process is about a year and a half to two years long. We're actually in the selection process right now for our next astronaut class in 2021. Um, there's, uh, about a class every four years. Um, and so I put my application in, in 2011, I think is the first time we filled out the applications and, um, I was selected in 2013.
0: Uh, how, how many astronauts are there? I literally don't even know the answer to that. So, like how many people, how many people are astronauts? So right now, active
1: astronauts at NASA, we have 47. Oh my God. Yeah.
0: So that is an incredibly small number of people. It is a small number
1: of people. And that's why, you know, it, it's, 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 that's actually one of the reasons why it's such a hard goal to have, right? Like I always tell people, like, when you are goal setting, make sure you are setting a good goal that you can actually control, right? Like if Cameron, if you want to go be the Olympic champion in a 100 meter dash, you know exactly the number that you need to go hit and, and what you have to go do. And, and, OK, so there's maybe that's a bad example because there, there are some, you know, genetic factors, et cetera. But but like there are <laughs> goals that you can control and then there are goals that you can't control. And being an astronaut, you can have a really strong resume. You can do everything right. But at the end of the day, it's not your choice. It's somebody else selecting you. And so like you can you can make yourself the most competitive you can be. But you always, you can't necessarily there has to, there's a little bit of luck involved right and so in my class there were over 60,500 applicants and we selected Did you say 660? Six, six, 6, no, sorry, 6000. 6000 6, and they chose 8 yeah. um and then uh, the 2017 class there were over 17,000 applications and we mm. selected 12 um and right now we're selecting a class and uh we had over 12,000 applications so um I don't know the answer of how I got selected, but, but here I am. And, and, and being an astronaut has absolutely been, I I will tell you this, like when I, the first day when I came through a hatch, the hatch, I've never seen even in pictures, like now I see the smile on my face and it was the most genuine ear to ear smile that I think I've ever had my whole life. Like I have, I was in this totally foreign place. I wasn't even on the planet and I have never felt so at home as any, anywhere else.
0: What do you have to do to your body? If you get accepted, what happens next to your body? What do you have to do to, be, to actually be an astronaut? Yeah, so, so
1: fitness is obviously very important. And, and actually, I'll tell you this, like, space is hard on your body. Um, uh, there's a couple things that happen. Uh, one thing is, so I was up there for six and a half months, um, like 204 days. And um, going up to space is actually not as hard on your body as coming back from space.
0: Like, you're talking about, like, liftoff? Like you're talking about like the actual leaving the atmosphere? No, actually
1: that was pretty calm. Like I've I've That been doesn't
0: know. On... No. Anne. no Anne.
1: <laughs> that was I've been on Look, Anne, I places. have
0: <laughs> seen movies. It is not calm. Wait. What is it? Okay, so you're uh, hang on a yeah. second. Let's let's just let me just ask a couple follow-up questions. You get in a seat that you get strapped into. The seat is facing what direction? Are you laying on your back? So you're laying on your back, yes. Because you're going to go, okay, straight yeah. up in the air. What You're laying your back. Um, there's like, a, you've got a helmet on of some sort. An astronaut helmet. Sure even, do. Maybe. Yeah. Um, That's exactly what you, we call it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you've got some sort of microphone or thing in your ear. Somebody's telling you what's going on. Like there's, I think there's a countdown of some sort. There is. Um, were you terrified?
1: I will tell you, the only time that i think my that i know my heart rate went up and i thought what am i doing was on the elevator ride up and and it had nothing to do with getting on a rocket it had everything to do with that elevator
0: (laughs) because i mean that's elevators (laughs) are scary so you're making a really good point no listen i
1: grew up out in spokane washington which means every summer we went to the space needle in seattle and we rode the elevator up and I, in my entire life, could never get myself to look out the window. And then there I was, suddenly at 39 <laughs> years old, in Kazakhstan, riding this elevator up that was probably 50 years old, in a window. And my crewmates are like, "And do you want to look out? Like, wave to all the people. And I said, no. And I, like, had my back turned to the window the whole time. And I all I could think of was get me in this rocket and get me off this elevator.
0: <laughs> did you, did it ever cross your mind during that time that the rocket was going to go, in fact, even higher than the space no, needle? No, that
1: was fine. If
0: you were to imagine a space needle... the that space was actually right further than that yeah.
1: no so it's funny <laughs> right because uh, so in all, in all seriousness like the the launch day by the time you get there you have done this like two-year process to train exactly for this flight and it's really what we call in the test pilot world a buildup process like when you see test pilots doing things that look crazy whether they're breaking the sound barrier they're hiring they're flying higher farther faster they're doing things to the aircraft that never have been done before they don't just go do that, right? Like if you are going to fly at four times the speed of sound, that's that's not your first, you start at one and then you go one and a half and then you go one, three quarters and you do it like step-by-step. Step. And it's really the same thing with launching into space. We spend the whole um, training period going a little farther every single day so that by the time you get to launch day, you literally have done everything except for stepping on that elevator. And once you're in the vehicle, much like flying other aircraft you are so focused on what you need to be doing and the mission that there's almost like some cognitive dissonance not not dissonance because a negative connotation but um conflict perhaps of just doing the things that you mechanically know you need to do versus in your mind going oh my gosh in eight minutes eight and a half minutes i'm going to be in space that's all it takes from the time you see the fire launch on the launch pad Eight minutes and forty-eight seconds later, we are floating in space. Um, so
0: it's a really quick transition. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I mean that's I, I can relate to that from my own career experience. Like, I've even sort of written about that. That like, you know, nobody nobody is on TV their first day. They're telling a joke. I just think it's. Um. It just seems so extreme. It seems
1: so extreme <laughs> well, to, to, to rocket like, into space. Just hearing you say telling jokes on TV made my heart rate go up more than the rocket launch did. Like, that would <laughs> okay. terrify me. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, different people have different skills yes. is what I'm hearing. Fair. Um, uh, okay, here's a question. Do you, Did you have, like, a space job? Or is everybody... Like, I'm assuming... The tasks might be you might have a specialty.
1: Is that true? Yeah. So um, that's actually a really insightful question. Um, so it used to be true in the shuttle days when when you know crews of about seven people would fly up for you know ten to fourteen days. Each person had a job. You were the pilot, or you were the spacewalker, or you were the robotics operator. Well, now we go to space for you know six month mission is about the norm, and so during that six months, you have to be able to do everything. So you have to be able to do all of the science projects um, that are gonna be on board, which is half of our time. Uh, you have to be able to do the spacewalks. You have to be able to operate the robotic arm, which, which goes out and grapples, grabs onto our visiting cargo vehicles. Um, you have to be able to fly you know, there and fly back. And so right now, uh, diversity of experience, breadth of, of knowledge and experience is easy, is as important as depth for the people that we're selecting and for how we perform. And so, wow, that's really interesting. So, yeah, we are all interchangeable. You know, if you if you look at uh, the vehicle that I flew up on, actually, so our pilot and commander was uh, a Russian who his background was in engineering. The co-pilot was a Canadian doctor, and I was the third crew member, and I was the only test pilot and the only one that didn't have any controls. And so, it's like everybody has to be able to do everything at this point. Wow did you Did you
0: pilot the Shuttle is the word shuttle. Did you pilot the shuttle? No, so I flew.
1: Space? So I flew the Soyuz, uh, which is a capsule-looking uh, spacecraft. It's Russian. So i uh, launched and landed out of Kazakhstan, Baikonur Kazakhstan, um, over in Russia. And so it is a it is a capsule vehicle. So the shuttle like flew like an airplane or landed like a glider. You know, wings. I knows shuttle. The Soyuz is more like a capsule shape, like you'd think of the Apollo. So it just does a vertical landing with a parachute.
0: But you wait hang on. <laughs> But is was there a moment where you were at the controls. you were at the controls. No. You're like you're the controls guy. No, so our it's a <laughs> Russian
1: vehicle and so um the Russian cosmonauts pilot The Russians are at the yes, controls. The Russians are at the yes. controls of that vehicle, yeah. And so um uh, but but we trained alongside them for emergency procedures, everything else. And so we we knew, you know, my job in that vehicle on the way up was atmosphere, um, and was so everything from like uh, making sure that we have the right gases in our atmosphere, make sure we have enough oxygen, make sure we don't have too much carbon dioxide, and then I had the valves to regulate that kind of thing. Um that was kind of my main task is monitoring life support systems. And it was all in then? Russian, so part of the training was Russian language because
0: it was all in Russian. So do you also speak Russian? Nah. Or- <laughs> and you're 40 you can t- you can take a break you've done too many things i just tell nasa that i said this is too much i i'll, I'll let them know just, but you could just take a weekend off here's the
1: problem though like because i've already done this in quarantine like you get a little time off and i just start remodeling my house
0: well that sounds great <laughs> you know that sounds more reasonable than Playing for the U.S. national team or learning Russian.
1: Yeah, I tell you, playing rugby right now sounds painful. Um, I miss it. Yeah. I miss it mentally. But I think if I went sure. and played rugby, I would be like, you know, everybody in their Middle Ages that goes someplace pick up basketball and ends up with pins in their leg. Like, yes. oh, my mind remembers how to do this, but I don't think my body can anymore.
0: Plus, your bones are all squishy from being in space. I don't know if that's actually true, but it <laughs> feels true. <laughs> it's not exactly true, but there is a change. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Does it? Okay. Because weight bearing is related to bone strength. Very yes, correct. So it would then follow that if you're in a lower gravity situation, this is. Let me explain space to you,
1: Anne. I not, <laughs> let me hear it, and then I'm going to tell you a joke.
0: Okay, great. <laughs> weight bearing is important for bone density, and so uh, if you're in space and it, you have a lighter gravitational pull, what is that actually? What actually happens to your body? In my mind sponge bones
1: okay so you're not wrong um but it, it's in not fact sponge.
0: Right. so
1: <laughs> so that's one of the things that we're trying that, that, or that the space station has been good for like long duration flights so when we first started flying astronauts on the space station in 2000 um over the course of the next six seven years as they came back we found that our astronauts who are all like you know we're all like probably 30 to 60 years old healthy people otherwise and people were losing the same amount of bone density in one month that an osteoporotic eighty-year-old woman would lose in a year. Oh, wow! And everyone went, okay, well, we can't go to Mars and 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 show up with no bones, right? And uh, to be able to stand. That
0: is one of the top things they say about Mars. You gotta have bones. You gotta have. bones. If you're gonna get there, you gotta have bones. <laughs> <You> got- yes, <laughs> and guts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so they
1: um, so basically like and this is a great thing to remember when you're in quarantine and you just don't want to get up and go start moving is that your bones are only as strong as they need to be. And so if you're not weighting your bones, the density, you're going to lose bone density. And so we created what we call countermeasures, what everybody else would call exercise that specifically loaded our bones. So if you look at astronauts now, like we spend two hours a day on the space station exercising. So that whole six and a half months, like two hours of that was um, uh, exercising every day. And a lot of that, you know, squats, uh, deadlifts, um, everything that you can kind of do at the gym, bicep curls, shoulder presses, everything that we did every single day. And, and we have almost negated, essentially negated that bone loss over a long period of time. But now what they're looking at is actually the structure of the bone that is recreated in space because you're like we're constantly regenerating every part of us. Right. We're, we're biological beings. So our cells are constantly regenerating. So now what they're looking at is that the structure of the bone that is regenerated in space is not; may not be as strong as it is on the ground. So kind of you mentioned like squishy bones. It's actually brittle bones. We've seen astronauts breaking bones after flights for things they shouldn't because perhaps that structure is a little more brittle. Um, the squishy part is actually your back. So when we're in space, we, we grow. I grew almost two inches when I was in space uh, because all of the squishy parts of your back stretch out. And then in a really painful one week, when you get back, they all squish back to your normal size. Oh, it hurts. It hurts. Yeah, it does hurt. Sorry, keep going.
0: I just, (laughs) that's, this is fascinating. Yeah,
1: it's, it's pretty painful and and different people's bodies react differently. But most people do have that back pain when you get back because you do, you squish down pretty hard. Like something I didn't appreciate before I left that is like, like you feel it when you come back from space after that long period of time you feel like this foreign traveler to earth and you're experiencing everything for the first time. And like your watch feels heavy. Your, your computer feels like everything feels heavy. And you just keep thinking gravity is the strongest force I've ever felt in my
0: life. And, and your body is putting up with that also. Oh my God. Well, I think Celine Dion would disagree with you and say it's love. Um, But (laughs) I actually, Maybe. this is, it's really interesting to think about the, oh man, that—that that is definitely something I was uh, intrigued and wanted to ask you about is the physical effects of um, returning. Like, I also think about something like your digestive tract, which is moved along by gravity and that therefore like, coming I mean, it just seems like, how do you, like, how do you come back and have your body work at all? Does it just not work? Well, and, and so Cameron, actually, you just nailed like something that I think is so amazing, because I mentioned like,
1: getting used to not, not having gravity, and then getting used to gravity again, is is really hard. But like, if you really think about it on the huge scale, right? Humans were whatever your belief system is, but we have been on earth for a really long time. And we have evolved to be what we are right now, um, over millions of years, right? And then and then like me as an individual, I was 39 years old before I went to space. And so my all of my systems were generated in gravity and then you blast off of the earth you 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 put yourself in a totally different physical environment than you've ever been in and like worst case scenario or like eh, four or five days you feel fine like the ability of the body to adapt is is amazing to me wow that is amazing yeah yeah i think i think the coolest part about space was not getting used to it it was when i didn't even think about being there anymore it was just like second nature but um, but you, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned your internal organs. I'll tell you, you know, everything shifts up when you're in space because gravity pulls it down. Right. So it kind of shifts up. And I remember the first day I got back to earth and, and they laid me down and they, you know, I take off the pressure suit from landing and everything. And, and they said, okay, are you ready to sit up? And I said, okay. And when I sat up, I could feel all of my organs, like move, oh my God. move down <laughs> in my stomach <laughs> And I was like, I remember saying it and I was like, you know, oh, horrifying. It was so weird. That's so horrifying. And I actually thought to myself, you know what? Like every time we go from laying down to standing up, I bet our organs shift. But we're so used to it, we don't feel it. But like when you won't feel it for six and a half months, you're like, my stomach just moved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I I feel like I've felt that my stomach was that my organs were falling down in my body multiple times. I just never had the language for it. So I'm excited to have that now. Yeah. Will you get to return? I have no idea how this works. Are you like an astronaut for life? Do you age out of being able to do space missions, but you can be in the program? Tell me any of that.
1: So as long as you um, perform, uh, your, your performance uh, is good and that you're medically qualified, which can can be the, the harder part sometimes, um, then you are eligible for future flights. So um, after every flight, they we take a a good hard look at 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 folks, and if you want to stay, um, then you get another flight. So I'm definitely in line uh, for another flight. Um, we kind of we kind of joke that right after we land, we're in the back of the line. Everyone else is going to get an opportunity to go first, but it's a really good sure. line to be in the back of. So uh, I am how many very much looking forward to the next flight. And and actually, you know, I'll tell you, I wanted to go to space my entire life. Like it, it would keep me up at night, the excitement of going to space. And I I it was I was 39 and a half when I flew in space when I left and I was 40 when I got back and it's been almost a year and and how bad I want to go right now dwarfs how I felt before like there's just no comparison I want to go back right now more than I ever wanted to go in the first place why what are you gonna what are you what did you find out there hey you know it just it felt like home it felt like the right it was like this culmination of exactly where you're supposed to be you know it was I felt like I was I was pretty good at it I felt gosh now I'm gonna have to think about that I don't know why I want to go back so bad but I do did you get scared at all no there was no fear about it um you know the and I and I tried to figure out why like because I, I didn't know you never know how you're gonna feel right and and, and you had asked before about launch day. And, and I would be totally, I would be the first person to tell you if I had fear on that day, but I really didn't. And, and I've been wondering why. And I think part of it is that at that point, it's out of your control. Um, you know, from the time you're on earth into space, like, yes, you need to maneuver the vehicle and there's things that can go wrong. But for the most part, you know, if something's going to happen to a vehicle, it's really out of your control. And so there's almost a piece about it. It's like, okay, mm. there's nothing I can do about it. You know, when I fly helicopters or now when we fly the T-38 jets, like there's always something you can affect the outcome a lot more than when you're launching to space. That uh, personally, right? There's a lot of people along the way that can affect the outcome, um, and and that's the only thing I can really think of. But I will tell you, that there was a couple times that I looked and I said, "This is this is kind of crazy what we're doing." Um, and one of them I remember, I'll never forget, right before we re-entered the atmosphere in the Soyuz. There's this you have to come into the the atmosphere at the right angle. Um, otherwise, if you go too steep, then the, the G-forces and the slowing down on your vehicle can be too great for what it's designed for. And it can put your you kind of can hurt yourself. And if you go too shallow, it's like a rock skipping on water. You'll skip right off the atmosphere. And so you have to hit your angle right. And I remember as we were coming down to that angle um, and I, I snuck out, there was a window kind of over my back right shoulder. And I remember looking out at the earth and it was the, the most disconcerting moment was was actually like, right? Because the only like, wow, or just profound moment of was, wow, if we skipped off the atmosphere, like we would never go back to the planet. Like we've got to nail this landing. Um, And and it wasn't wasn't like a fear. It was like really more just like a out of body, out of planet experience, you know, where you just look out and you kind of realize the magnitude of what you're doing.
0: What about what about like, you know, spiritual fear, that smallness that like, I think everybody imagines that, you know, so few people are really going to get to have this experience that you had. But I think that we have, I think many people imagine it because it's very human to feel fear when faced with our smallness. You know, I think for, I think that sometimes can be a human reaction to that. Another human reaction to that can be freedom, you know, faced with finding out that you're small and feel free. Um, did any of that come up with you and come up for you? I know you're like focused on, you know, the task at hand. So I don't even know if you would have time to sort of have that existential thought that anybody who hasn't been there might imagine you would have.
1: You know you actually do have a lot of time to reflect you know you can't you can't be focused on the task for six and a half entire months you know they tried to give us two days off a week just like here and so you do have time to like sit out the window and and really think about things oh my god you
0: have weekends
1: we do you do you have weekends (laughs) yeah i don't don't know that's delightful yeah yeah and it's um you know for me I don't know why this word kind of hits me, but when I really reflect on what it was like looking back and thinking about our place in the bigger universe, there, there's a lot of sadness that comes along with that for me. And and part of that is like, those of us that have flown to space, we have at a various level of what we call the overview effect of like how it affects you personally, spiritually, otherwise to like look back at our planet. And um, I think like, For me, I'm so sad that most people never get that experience because if they did, or even a flavor of it, we would not be as divisive as we are. Like we live in such a divisive society right now. Um, We wanna focus on all our differences. And I think you get this profound, in space at least, like I had this profound sense of not only size by time or size by space, but by time also, right? Like we're here for a really short period of time and, and you know, I don't know if comparison, like our entire universe is like the size of a speck of dust on somebody's sleeve or if we're like the most massive thing ever. Like, I don't know, but, but I know what we do have and that's each other and the best planet in the solar system, like hands down.
0: <laughs> oh, man, all the other planets that listen to this show are going to be so fucking pissed when you said that. Pluto, um,
1: I do have a soft spot for Pluto. I'm working on making you a planet again. They don't always
0: yeah. to <laughs> um, Yeah, I, you know, I hear you. Sometimes, though, when I think about that, something like that, I mean, I, I, I haven't thought about it from that perspective, but sometimes I think about how an openness to those questions and to that perspective is also required. Maybe this is one of the only instances where your openness doesn't matter because if you were faced with that view, you would have to adjust. But I just think about, like, you know, when I think about you're talking about things being divisive, it's in order for us to cross a bridge toward each other, we have to be sort of coming, we have to want to walk on the same bridge. And that's one thing that I think is an obstacle that. You know that we just can't control. Like I, I have you know, it's my personal belief that the you know person currently in the White House is motivated by some things that are so different than what motivates me that we would not end up on the same bridge. And that's and that's where that's where there's like a that's where that perspective, which I which I that's where it feels like that's where I feel a limitation in that is like, I have this bridge of wanting to be like, okay, let's talk about how to make the world better. Some people are like, uh, actually straight up, I'm just here for money. You know, like, like some people are just, they're on a different bridge. And part of that
1: is, is taking ownership of, it's not just even allowing other people to be happy, but actually saying, you know what, I could actually positively affect your happiness based on what I say and do and, and being willing to. And I think, an image that I think I will always remember because it was like this moment to reflect when I was out on a spacewalk. Um, and, and a lot of people say, well, when you were on a spacewalk, you know, we're in the suit, we're outside the station now, now we're just hanging on the outside of the station. Wait, I have a question. So yeah. you're hanging.
0: You're, you're uh, why not you are you not only hanging? Be... Cause you're not
1: like, ha- I mean, you're holding, yeah, yeah, you're but holding. You're
0: holding on. That's right. Are you, are you like, uh, whatever the space equivalent of a rope tethered? Are you Absolutely. tethered? Absolutely. You are tethered. Yes you're tethered, but you're outside of the, you're out, you're just in your own suit. That's right. Yeah. Floating around. Continue.
1: Yeah. And so we're out there doing like maintenance tasks and stuff. And a lot of people say, well, are you, did you feel really far away from the earth when you were in space? And, um, and I remember I had this profound moment, um, where I just realized I felt just the opposite. I, because so there I am, like the space station, we're going 17,000 miles an hour. So first of all, you're like seeing the solar system, every solar system <laughs> poster that you've seen, you are seeing it in fast forward. Like the moon is going so fast, you can watch it move. And, and you are going around the world every 45 minutes, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. And, and so there you are, you're working on the outside of the space station. And I remember, um, and and some scuba divers may have like a similar sensation, like doing a wall dive, but... I'm holding onto the side of the space station and I look down, we're about 250 miles above earth and you can its just kind of going, it's going past my feet. It's like feet earth. And, And I'm watching it move. And, uh, and then I looked out the other direction and it was like stars and blackness, deepness of space. And like the biggest thing that I could see was the earth. And then I was being held, to the Earth by like this very small amount of gravity that was keeping us in orbit around it, and suddenly I was like, I don't know. There was like this the sense that like the universe is gigantic, but like this planet right here, it's like holding on to me. It's holding on to us with this little bit of gravity, and like it was this amazing like ownership of the planet and kinship with everybody that's human. It's like. When I got back from space, like every, the first humans I saw, I was just like, "You guys are my brothers and my sisters." And and I landed in <laughs> Kazakhstan, and like everybody that I saw, I'm just like, "You have no idea, like how similar we are, right?" And like those are the eye, through the eye, those eyes, I get to see everybody now. Like everybody that I meet, I don't care where I am on this planet, I have more in common with than I do different, hands down. And the the burden and the responsibility to share that, not just so people go, "Oh, well, that must have been neat going to space." But like so that it's learned and like learning means like not only do you hear the information, but you change your behavior because of it. Like, how do I communicate
0: this to everybody? I'm speechless. I don't have an answer to how we how you communicate that to everybody. But I. um, I guess maybe you just start one podcast. I want to speak to you uh, for about 70,000 more hours. Um, but we're almost at the end of our time. And so I want to ask you, oh, I didn't, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I always have the uh, folks end the podcast by shouting out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. Do you have a queero to
1: shout out? Yeah, you know, and I knew you were going to ask me this. And if there's one thing that all of us astronauts have in common, we overthink everything. So, <laughs> like, I'm going through my rolodex of the 72 different answers that I could have had, but I think I, I fell on a common theme. Um, okay, I'm going to have to say two. Can I say two? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Okay, because they're because they're both uh, they're both groups. Hundred percent. Okay, so now, one of them are people who take the time to communicate the lessons that they've learned. Okay. And so people who write books and do podcasts like yourself and, and go on TV shows and make movies and do outreach because there are so many people that, that learn so many things from the time, you know, you get in your forties and all of a sudden there's people that go, okay, I'm going to take these lessons and go live for myself. And there's other people that go, wow, there's a whole bunch of people behind me that, that need to know that they have a place in the world and they communicate it. And, and when you do that, you help people, not only that you are picturing in your mind that you're bringing along, but you affect so many people. And that is how the world changes. Um, that is beautiful. Those are my What those is my your hair. second one gonna be? You already nailed it. <laughs> so my second one is anybody who has changed their mind profoundly because of new information. Um, and, and, you know, it, Part of like the way that we get out of old ruts in thinking is generations, right? Like we, we grow up differently and therefore we are different, but there are people and I'm related to them who had very, you know, narrow mindsets before, and then they learn new information or they met new people and they, they change and they accept. And that's the other way that our society, um, it changes, you know, and that's why I say like, I'm in this incredible time of everybody's, I'm surrounded by these people sharing their stories. And I'm surrounded by people who have changed their viewpoints. Um, and, you know, so now I just got to figure out what my place is and all that.
0: Wow, And thank you so much for your time. Thank I'm, you. I'm like very moved by this conversation and also incredibly impressed with all you've been able to accomplish as a human. Thank you, well, likewise, Good job. likewise
1: um, I'm impressed with what you've done. That's why I'm staying here.